1: the FT. It's clear that the defence of the shoreline at this point has not been successful and I feel devastated by that, absolutely gutted. But what I can tell you is that we are here for the long haul. That was Tony Hayward, Chief Executive of BP, talking in Louisiana on Monday about the company's efforts to tackle that huge oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. I'm Ed Crooks, the FT's energy editor. Welcome to the FT's regular weekly energy podcast. We're going to be talking today about that spill. I'm joined today by Fiona Harvey, our environment correspondent, and by Javier Blas, the commodities correspondent going to be discussing uh, the environmental impact and the efforts that BP is going to be making to stop the oil escaping, which are uh, happening right now as we speak, what they're calling the top kill procedure, and also a little bit more about what's emerged about the uh, possible causes of the accident. And we're also going to be discussing the European Commission's suggestion that the European Union should make a much deeper cut in its greenhouse gas emissions than had been previously suggested. But first, as I said, we're going to be talking about BP, and perhaps uh, first we're going to look at this question of the top kill. This is going to be an attempt by BP, essentially, to plug the well up. What they're going to do is connect up pipes to the blow-up preventer, that broken bit of equipment on the seabed from which the oil is escaping. They're going to connect pipes up to it and pump what's called mud, which is kind of heavy drilling fluid. Mud is what it's called in the jargon. It's a a very specialised fluid, which is heavier than water. The idea is that that will be pumped down the well, will go into the well, push back the oil and gas that's escaping, push them down. Then they'll get a kind of a pressure balance, so they will bring the well under control, as they say, and then they'll be able to pour cement down and close the well off and seal it and stop the oil coming for good. And at the same time, then, that will now simultaneously allow them time to drill a relief well, which they're also doing, where they can then drill into the old well with this new well pour more cement down that as well to seal it off completely it's a complicated business BP was still as we're speaking now BP was still evaluating the results of various tests they've been looking at the blowout preventer and other equipment down on the seabed to see whether or not they thought they were going to be able to go ahead with this and as Tony Hayward said when he was talking about it he made it clear this was a difficult operation that had no guarantee of success it has never been done in 5,000 feet of water If it was on land, we would have a very high confidence of success. But because it's in 5,000 feet of water, we need to be realistic about the issues around operating in a mile of water. We rate the probability of success of somewhere between 60 and 70%. And, of course, all of BP's previous attempts to stop the leak using various different methods, trying to get the blowout preventer closed, trying to drop a containment dome, as they called it, over the leak uh, in order to collect the oil and pump it off the surface. Those have all failed. There is also pressure because of the calendar counting down there's a particular issue coming in the gulf with the start of the hurricane season the hurricane season formally officially starts on the 1st of june in that area actually it kind of builds up slowly through the summer and doesn't reach its peak really until august and into september but the longer this goes on as a problem that hasn't been fixed the more the risk rises that it will be hit by a serious hurricane and fiona if that does happen that's something that environmentalists are very concerned about right
0: There was a hurricane uh, somewhere in the area that the the oil slick has affected, that that would have absolutely devastating consequences for marine life, for life along the coast, for people as well. You know, we've seen already in recent years the the sorts of horrific damage that a a, a hurricane can inflict uh, in that area. Imagine if that was coupled with escaping oil that could drive the oil far further inland than it's actually uh, reaching at the minute, far from the shore. So
1: it's actually, you mean, the hurricane kind of, Ends up dumping oil over, over land, farmland, people's houses.
0: In the worst case scenario, that is actually what, what could end up uh, happening.
1: That certainly is a very alarming prospect for anyone that might be affected by it. It also presumably potentially greatly increases the bill to BP in terms of the compensation and the damages that they're going to have to pay out to people affected by the I mean, We heard uh, Mary Landrieu, the uh, US Senator from Louisiana, talking about this clear commitment that BP has made that if anyone has lost money, BP will pay to compensate them.
0: If you made $50,000 last year and you can't work this year, BP is going to write you a check for $50,000. If your business made a million dollars last year and you can't make that million dollars this year, BP is going to make your business whole. There is no question in my mind or the minds of these senators or these leaders up here who will pay this bill.
1: The ballpark number that people have been throwing around in terms of what the cost of BP might be has been about $10 billion. That seems to be the consensus estimate of uh, a lot of financial analysts about how much BP is going to have to pay. Uh, Just recently, in the last few days, people have started to throw around much higher numbers. And I guess it's a a case like that that would... Uh, indeed lead to those much bigger bills uh, arriving for BP. Another aspect which seems to be around at the moment is a potential impact on the oil market and on oil prices.
2: But heavy, how are you seeing things now? The market has gone down looking at Brent, that's the European benchmark, for nearly $90 a barrel at the beginning of May, to now at the end of the month we are trading just at $70 and we have seen the price of Brent just breaking down $70 for a few days. And uh, one of the most strongest signals that the market may be very close to a bottom is that we have seen quite a lot of hedging by the industry, the consumers, airlines in particular, at $70. So the airlines are just going into the market and trying to lock in prices for the next few months at $70. And what they buy is a very good signal that they consider that the price is cheap enough used to make the buy, and the bankers are interpreting that move as a signal that the bottom is already there at $70 a barrel.
1: And so how are we to interpret this? Does this mean that there's effectively some kind of flaw under the oil price at about $70, which is created by what, by OPEC and by OPEC's concerns?
2: It, it is a mix of OPEC use having signalled very clearly that $75 is a price that they want to see, at least, and, and Saudi Arabia in particular, signalling that $75 in on average for a year is a price that they are very comfortable because it's good for consumers, it's also good enough for the the producers. So that on one side. The other is that when you see uh, corporate users just buying at $70 and just locking in for long periods at $70, it's also a very good sign that they see the economic situation good enough to justify that price. I mean, most of the drop in oil prices over the last few weeks has happened in spite of very good, or ironically, in spite of very good demand numbers coming, particularly from China, but also from the US, where we have not seen good numbers for, for a few months. So it has been on expectations that the situation in Europe in particular was going to lead to a slowdown in consumption of, of commodities. But so far, these expectations, and the question is whether we are going to see uh, uh, good numbers or not. I was talking to a senior banker this morning, and he he basically expressed the sentiment as as follow. He said, we are in a situation where, if the economic data and the demand data for oil continues to be as good as been recently, market has to rebound because the demand is coming there. I so said the question: is if this expectation of a slowdown really translate on a real slowdown, when that we can go down, but so far we have not seen the expectation translating into anything. But higher demand numbers, particularly in China. It's very, very strong consumption.
1: So, I mean, still, though, if the economic news were to get even worse, the price could still carry on down and break down through that $70. They, they
2: could, but then, then if we go down to seven, below $70, uh, kind of approaching 65 or something like that, on, on, on a consistent basis, then we have to start thinking about OPEC action, And although the cartel has not any meeting until October, uh, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be action. Indeed, they don't need even to meet. They They just need to trim a bit of their current overproduction. OPEC is pumping a lot more oil than their official level is. So Saudi Arabia could just send the signal, at just reduce a bit the production. Others could follow just on the margin. But what we really need is the Saudis to say, look, 70 is OK, but use below 70, we don't like to see this. So we're going to cut a bit the production. And they, they could just restore prices very, very easily. I think that the market has also learned over the last year when we saw very low prices that OPEC could work as a cartel and they could reduce the uh, production quite significantly to restore supply and demand balances. So uh, in a way, I think that uh, there are several forces acting that they should keep oil prices at about $70 and so. The other thing that bankers are telling me is that a lot of the speculative money that was on the oil market uh, in April and early May has just evaporated, has been liquidated from the market. So the price is really trading today as a supply and demand uh, balance. And there is no really uh, real speculation that the macro hedge funds are not longer there. So uh, I I think that there are some factors there that it should support oil prices at least at $70 for a few months.
1: Thanks. Thanks for that. Yeah, so Fiona, then the other big story of the day is this uh, discussion document, whatever it is, from the European Mm -hmm. Commission about moving to a 30% cut in CO2 emissions. What's, what is what is exactly the status of this report and what, what's the reaction to it going to be do you think?
0: Well that's a very good question because it's being put out there very firmly as a discussion document not a proposal not certainly not a plan it's an analysis that's been done by the European Commission of the costs and benefits of moving to a 30% target uh, and some of the options that uh, member states could use if they were to move to a 30 And
1: does it even come down to any conclusion at the end? I mean, do they then say, and on balance, we think it's better to go to 30%? No,
0: they are very, very careful, and that shows you what a hot potato this is politically. The last time this was discussed uh, in the European Union, we had very acrimonious discussions that ended up in a compromise where, you know, the the target was set at 20% with the option of moving to 30% if other nations agreed. Now, at Copenhagen in December... Other nations showed no interest whatsoever in uh, doing some kind of deal with the EU to get them to move to to 30%. So it appeared that this was very firmly off the table at Copenhagen, but apparently not. There are elements within the Commission and there are some member states who are interested in moving to a 30% target.
1: But as I remember, what happened in Copenhagen, there were also not large number of member states that were very firmly opposed to it, and I mean, including, I think, if I'm right in saying, the United Kingdom, but uh, France, Germany, a couple of others, even those who were very much engaged with and kind of keen to participate in the talks and very keen to see a deal, mm-hmm. said this 30% thing is a very important bargaining chip that we got. We don't want to throw this away by just automatically committing to 30%. We want to use this as part of our negotiation negotiating strategy in order to get the maximum possible commitment out of the US, China, whoever, other large emitters. And if we throw that away and just say well, well we don't care what you do, we will unilaterally commit to going to 30%, that will weaken our bargaining position.
0: That's the fear that, that then you, you lose that lever and to be honest the, the European Union doesn't have many other Levers it doesn 't have many other tools in its toolbox when it 's trying to persuade other nations uh, to follow its lead and increase their emissions targets, but the argument has has sort of been made since then really that actually it would be beneficial to the EU to move to a thirty percent target now that 's an interesting argument, and some of the reasons behind this uh, they 're given in this document is that it would be a lot cheaper now. To move to 30% than it would have been. When these calculations were carried out in 2008, it was thought that the cost of meeting the 20% target would be 70 billion euros a year. Actually, that's going to be about 48 billion euros a year. And that's thanks to the recession. So the recession has depressed emissions. It's meant that it's going to be cheaper to cut emissions now in the next few years. Uh, And so the Commission is saying, okay, you've got this golden opportunity, this sort of, you know, once in a, in a generation opportunity to move to this uh, tougher target at a much lower cost than it would be. There are benefits to that uh, such as creating green jobs and that's something that the EU really needs to do because you know so many traditional industries have migrated to lower cost parts of the world. The EU needs really to beef up its uh, its manufacturing sector in terms of green technology if it's going to keep its, its economy going. So there are these arguments that actually it's a good idea to move to, to the now, and that the costs are are outweighed by the benefits.
1: But still, it's going to be massively controversial with a lot of European companies, particularly manufacturing industries, that say that they're already facing this huge burden of CO2 restrictions, of higher energy costs than their competitors in other countries, probably particularly emerging economies like China. Extremely controversial.
0: The EU... Uh, the Commission, rather, in this document does set out some ways of alleviating those problems. So, for instance, under the EU's Emissions Trading Scheme, which is what affects most uh, companies with uh, heavy energy use, the companies that are most at risk of competition from overseas would be given free permits to produce carbon dioxide, as they are at the moment. Uh, Whereas other companies that are less at risk of overseas competition, such as, for instance, the energy industry itself, because that can't really move and extractive industries and so on. They would not be given free permits. Uh, They would have their permits auctioned to them. And the idea behind that is that then companies that are seen as a bit more mobile would have less incentive to do so. They'd be protected.
1: Well, I guess that may allay some of the criticism, but even so, it's clear this one is going to be a very, very controversial proposal, and I'm sure we're going to be coming back to the debate over it in future Energy Weekly Podcasts. So thank you very much, Fiona. Thank you very much, Javier, for coming along. Thank you all very much indeed for listening. This was the FT's Weekly Energy Podcast, produced by LJ Filatrani, and we hope you'll be listening in next week. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.